This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. I want to take a second to thank Gadgetflow for sponsoring this episode. Guys, if you are looking for an awesome platform to get your crowdfunding project in front of over 25 million people per month, you should absolutely check them out. They are the third largest Indiegogo partner and listed on Kickstarter as experts. And not to mention, they've worked with over 4,000 crowdfunding projects since 2012. Their platform also now supports AR and VR, which I thought was a really cool add-on. To find out more, you should definitely head over to thegadgetflow.com slash submit to list your crowdfunding project today, but be sure to use coupon code UNCUT10 to get 10% off your services with them. Hey guys, the guest we have today was introduced to me through Jason Gaynard, uh, Mastermind Talks. As you know, he's a previous guest on the show. And I remember opening up my inbox and I signed up for dinner in Toronto with uh, about 80 other rockstar entrepreneurs. And at the top of that email from Jason Gaynard, um, was, hey guys, really excited that you're going to be joining us for dinner tomorrow night. We have some really exciting people. Top of the list was hostage negotiation. And my eye just kind of fell on that as one of the coolest jobs ever. Because I, I feel like if I could, you know, when you want to go back to when you were 10 years old and make different choices to see like maybe if you chose a different career, what you would have picked for me, SWAT team. And like going into like that sort of line of work would be, I think I'm too much scaredy cat to do it, but like it's just amazing. And so um, today we have Paul Nadeau joining us on the show, who is um, by trade a hostage negotiator. And I'm really stoked to dive in. He's a specialist. Um, and like, we're going to be talking about really, um, you're wondering what does hostage negotiation have to do with crowdfunding? Um, it when you take a step back, it's really looking at the dynamics of achievement and self-worth. And as I go on and on and on about crowdfunding is not about crowdfunding. It's about building a company and building a business and making, turning your dreams of, of launching your physical product and making that a reality. And I find that um, with me and the journey that I've gone on to scale my company in the back end and be an influencer, I've, I've come up uh, against a lot of self-sabotage, a lot of self-doubt, and a lot of things that if you don't have the tools or self-awareness to deal with them properly, they can actually stop your personal growth and be the thing that stops you from achieving the success you want. So, um, Paul, I'm really stoked to have you on the show and to talk about a different angle of self-sabotage in how you've actually been able to use um, and manipulate a situation to... Um, for people to, to be safe and stuff like that. So um, Paul's been a detective for 20 years as part of that um, hostage negotiation and crisis management. And just some of the stories we shared when we actually met, so freaking awesome. So Paul, I'm really, really stoked to have you on the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here as well. Yeah. Um, so where can people uh, find your website online? We'll just start uh, with that. Okay, let's start with that. Um, it's... Uh, it's out there. It's www.jpaulnadeau.com. So it's jpaulnadeau.com. And uh, there's a few things that are going to be modified uh, very shortly for a lot of good reasons. And uh, yeah, that's how you can find me. Amazing. What does a J stand for? Jean. Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul. That's it. My French name. That's it. <laughs> that's awesome. Are you uh, from Toronto originally or out like Montreal way? 
No, um, my, my roots are in Oshawa, Ontario. I was born and raised in Oshawa. Um, my parents came from Quebec. My roots, mm-hmm. uh, some of my roots are from Belgium. And uh, I, but I was born and raised in the schwa and, uh, you know, taught or was taught French from the uh, moment I could speak. And uh, yeah, so that's how I ended up with Jean-Paul. Man, uh, I'd say majority of listeners are American. So if you guys are like, what? where's Oshawa? We're both in Toronto and Oshawa is a about 45 minute train ride outside of Toronto. Um, it's funny because I don't meet a lot of um, like French descendants that live in the Toronto area because I'm from Ottawa, which is our nation's capital, and everyone speaks French there. And I actually, one of the reasons I left the city and moved to Toronto is because I didn't speak French and I didn't want to speak French. So I, I moved to the American version of our country here. So gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Very exciting. So um, I'd like to start off with just giving people a bit of a background on your work and stuff. Um, So let's just start with what drew you into becoming a detective in the first place? And how did, what what did the journey look like into hostage negotiation? Because I can't imagine that's a popular, um, it's cool, but I can't imagine that's a a popular um, specialty that people choose. Okay. uh, Yeah. My... um my background is quite interesting. Um, I was, as I said, I was born and raised in Oshawa, but my father was a very violent alcoholic. And uh, consequently, my mother, my older brother and I used to get beaten very regularly by this man. At the age of about seven, um, I was so frustrated that I was unable to protect myself and my family. I made a promise to myself, and that promise was that when I grew older, I was going to become a policeman so I could arrest people like my dad. My idea was to arrest my father, and and that was at the age of seven I came up with this. Uh, My father never gave me the opportunity to arrest him, however. He shot and killed himself when I was 17. He used the same rifle to shoot him that he shot Santa Claus with when I was about uh, eight years old. He told me he had shot Santa Claus and he showed me the rifle. So I was true to my word and to my conviction of helping others, and I joined the police department at 21. As I got further into uh, police work, um, because of a lot of circumstances in my background where I really had to fend for myself, and I had to negotiate, you know, at a very young age to get a job because my father sent me out to find a job when I was 12. And uh, I had to negotiate with grown-ups and get them to, uh, you know, to uh, see things my way or at least give me an opportunity. So communication and uh, the ability to, um, to persuade, um, I, I self-taught myself that. Uh, when I became a police officer, I had more opportunities for doing that, and eventually I got into the detective office. One of the jobs that, uh, that, that popped up, of course, was, uh, was specializing in a particular unit where interrogation was a big factor. Um, and an interrogation, uh, a lot of people think that that's kind of beating a confession out of somebody, but no. Um, it, it shouldn't be. It should be a matter of communication, of trying to reach an agreement, show value for somebody telling you the truth. Now, I could get into that, but that would take hours for us to discuss. But the point is, it involves effective communication, listening skills, prompting, getting people to open up to you. And I was good at it. So I, I was very successful. 
because it was so successful in influencing behavior or not so much, it's positive influence and it's getting people to open up and getting them to see value of what you have to offer, even though you might not think in the beginning that they might see the, the value, you show them the value and they, they appreciate it. A position for a hostage negotiator came up and they rarely do because our department was maybe a thousand people. So we had uh, five or six hostage negotiators. And I thought, why not? You know, when opportunity shows itself and I thought, that's kind of a cool job. You know, it's kind of sexy in a way, you know, like a hostage negotiator. But also it was another opportunity for me to do what I had promised myself from a very young age, and that was to help people. What better way to, to help someone who is in crisis or, you know, is, is holding someone hostage? Not only would I have an opportunity to, to help and, and save the hostages, I'd be able to help and save the hostage taker too, because oftentimes we fall into a situation where we, we are desperate and don't know the way out. And when you have the right person um, in your business, whatever, when, you, when sometimes your worst enemy is yourself, you don't know exactly where you're going, what you can do with what you have, uh, you feel hopeless in the situation. Then you have somebody say, hey, wait a minute, why don't I help you with this? Here's what I have to offer. Why don't I, I show you a different way of looking at this so you don't feel like such a hostage, you know, that you feel that you have options. And so that's how uh, my hostage job came, came to being is that I, I applied for it when the opportunity arose. I was selected uh, through um, a, a, an extensive uh, process that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police put me through. And uh, once I had passed all their tests and they felt that I was a good choice, I became a hostage negotiator, and the rest is history, as they say. When I think of hostile situations, um, I think of, they're different things. I see Coast Guard, um, there are endless possibilities um, for that. Would you say there's a pattern with, um, the, oh my God, this, sorry, my question. I'm going to edit this part right now. Yeah. My question is, what are, when, when you were brought into a hostage situation, what is a scenario? Like, what does that look like? Is it a plane? Is it a Coast Guard calls you out because someone has uh, hijacked a boat? Like, what, what does that look like? Okay. Um, that's a very good question because, as you can well imagine, um, a hostage negotiation is, it is a negotiation. So it is trying to reach an agreement with someone. Uh, to show value in what in what you have to offer, um, taking them out of uh, you know a, a desperate situation, whether you know you're trying to to get somebody to buy into your product or or to uh, or to uh, employ you and your services, you have to show some value, and that has to be established through communication. With most business people, we or you, uh, more specifically, have an opportunity to prepare for that negotiation. So in the preparation phase, you know what you're getting into. You're getting in to discuss this particular thing or this particular product. So you might have a week or, or several days to plan and prepare and to imagine what scenarios might, be, uh, might come your way. But for a hostage negotiator, we don't. 
It's not like the hostage taker calls us up or the person in crisis calls us up and says, uh, hey, in a week from now, I plan on getting some hostages and I'll be doing it at this variety store or on this bus. So I'll see you in a week. No, it's, it's not like that. So what we have to do is we have to prepare um, using several different scenarios. It's, it's more like a test. It's, it's we know how to negotiate. And twice a month, we would have these, these wonderful scenarios. Uh, every uh, Professional actors, all uh, levels of uh, emergency services were at our disposal. We would go up to a community college where, uh, you know, like perhaps, uh, you know, several classrooms were, were going to be our stage or a bus was going to be our stage or whatever. We had no idea what we were getting into, but we were handed the script. Okay, today, Paul, you are negotiating uh, a terrorist off a of 747. Or today, you are negotiating, you know, a, a, an armed student uh, in a classroom. We just didn't know. So most, most scenarios in, in hostage situations don't always involve a hostage taker and their hostages. I would suggest that in, in North America... We're probably looking at about 92%, I'm suggesting 92, would be people in crisis. That's people who have taken themselves hostage. A person who is suicidal, uh, desperate, and has, you know, has told somebody or somebody has been concerned that they're going to kill themselves and all of a sudden the crisis hostage negotiator comes in and takes over. That 8%, you know, perhaps would be an actual hostage situation. We're talking domestic situations where husband and wife, somebody takes the other person hostage because of the circumstances. Um, a, a robbery gone bad, you know, a drug deal gone bad. Um, again, a lot of these hostage situations are not planned. It's not like, you know, somebody gets up in the morning and says, what a great day to take hostages. I'm just going to love today because I'm going to walk into the nearest supermarket, take some people hostage, and 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 just you know go for it. It's not like that happens. Uh, yeah. yeah so, so go ahead. Yeah. I was just um, I I'm in a sales background, and what I really I thrive in environments where I know exactly what I'm selling to the other person. I know um, there's a script for it. You will talk about what their current situation is, what they want, and what's stopping them. From, to get from point A to point B and then what you're selling is the path to get to point B in a very specific way. And it's so, as you're right, it's very predictable. Like I can wake up and I have my presentation, but what I can't, what fascinates me about hostage scenarios is you, you talk about it being the same way where you are offering something of value to the other person and you make them see the light, so to speak, and you're bringing them through a journey to, um, to, you know, to give up the hostages. And I just can't imagine walking into a situation and understanding what the crazed drug dealer or the bank robber or the guy that's kidnapped his son, um, what you know, how you, how do you know what to offer them? And what does that exchange look like to actually turn the situation around? Like that is what fascinates me because you, you get a call 20 minutes later, you're dealing with some situation with very little information and you're just kind of playing it as you go. So like, how do you manage that situation to start turning that around? Well, here's the thing. 
And you hit on a couple of really important uh, keys uh, that, that I believe, uh, and I'm writing a book on that very topic right now. Um, we should never judge a situation or a person before we get into it. You might think that the company that you're about to go into is this large, terrible company. They're going to tear you at the throat. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And you imagine all these kind of self-sabotaging thoughts and fear sets in. And then you, you know, you're unable to, to uh, provide what you, you know, what, what you have to offer in its best form. With crisis negotiations, yes, we know how to do it. But the one thing we don't know is the human element. What is that person going through? What are their needs at the moment? So we don't go in with the solution right away. That's crazy. Going in with a solution, you know, a prefabricated solution for their needs uh, without knowing all the details um, is, is simply um, ineffective. My job was to assure them that I had an idea of what you know, of what I would like to see. So my purpose was to help them out. My purpose was to provide them, you know, with something that they could work with. But number one, I had to ask them, what is it that you want? What are you going through right now? And, uh, you know, so I would walk up and of course, you know, the, the important thing is to introduce yourself, to make them feel comfortable, to set out what it is your purpose is. And then I would say, my, my intent here is to make sure that you're okay and that everybody else in there is okay and that at the end of the day, we work together at making sure that everybody gets out okay. Now, John, I, I don't know what you're going through. Why don't you tell me what you want? What's going on right now with you? And that is so important, even in business. It's not having this, this uh, in my opinion, it's not having this, uh, the, this solution without knowing all the facts. I may think I know all the facts, but until I ask the person sitting across from me, what is, what is it you're looking for? And then really evaluating what they're looking for to see if my solution actually fits, then I'm doing both of us an injustice. If I walk in and say, John, I think I know exactly what you want. You need to get out of that situation because the cops are going to come in and they're going to shoot you if you don't. Well, the guy's going to say, well, screw you, Paul. Uh, you know, sorry, that doesn't work for me. I first had to make a connection with that individual. They have to know me, like me, and trust me. Then they have to, they have to vent. They have to tell me because I will ask exploratory questions. I will say, what is going on with you? I really want to know what you, what you're looking for, what's happening in your life. You know, like what brought you to this, to this particular thing. And if you translate that to business, it's the same. You go, you, 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 you prepare, you have the right intent, you, you, you make the right first impression, and then you ask your client, what are you looking for? You know, what is it that, you, that your biggest challenges are? Or tell me how you feel, or, or you, you, let me know what your, your problems are to see if my solutions fit yours. And really, yeah. it is getting them to open it, right? Because that's the other thing. Like, I, if I were a hostage taker, I would, and you know, Hollywood has completely misconstrued this, but if I were someone that has gone in and robbed a bank, I, I bet that, I, I just assume that people that do that don't do it to, and they're just waiting on the detective to call them and say, okay, the negotiation can start. Because they, they're doing it because they're kind of scared and the situation went bad. And they're like, crap, I don't want to talk to anyone. And if I am now sitting across the way from a hostage negotiator, like you're just going to give me some sideways deal and lend me up in jail anyway. So I'm not going to want to talk to you, but 
So the other, like, I can see these people being really closed, but the other thing is they don't have a choice. They're backed into a corner. So how do you even, like, is it easy to get these guys to open up? Because I can't imagine that would be. It, no, it, and everybody is different. Um, is it easy? No. Um, can it be done? Absolutely. I mean, take a look at all the success uh, we have in doing that, you know, so that speaks for itself. It's like anything. Um, people, as I said a little bit earlier, no matter what the crisis is, and, and I used to be a professional interrogator talking to people who had committed murders, and I would get them to confess to their murder, and people would say, how, did you, how do you do that? Well, people want to cooperate. They really do in most cases. Now, I'm not saying in every case, but in most case, cases, people want a solution to their situation. And you hit something very uh, very important. You're right. Sometimes people are so emotionally uh, wrapped up or, or scared of their current circumstance, they need uh, time. And I'm not pressuring them to make a decision right away. In fact, I will take as much time as, as necessary to, you know, to calm them down. So they're in a state of crisis themselves, as is everybody else who is being uh, held by, captive by them. But for them, I need to build rapport and I need to build a relationship. And I can't come off as authoritarian. I can't come off as having all the answers and I can't tell them what to do. Later, I can subtly influence them what to do, but make them part of the solution, which is really important. People don't like to be told what to do, but if they come up with an idea of their own, when you kind of give a few suggestions that it might be the best thing to do, they feel that they have ownership over the solution and they, they tend to agree. Number one, you walk into a hostage situation and the chances are 99% of the time, the hostage taker is not going to hear a thing you're saying because they are going through the fight or flight. Their hearts are beating so loud, they can't hear anything but the sound of their own heart. They are afraid. They are confused. They, they certainly didn't expect a hostage negotiator to be on the end of the, the line. But your voice has to be soft, has to be you know, in control, and has to be welcoming. The first bit, they won't hear a thing you're saying. Imagine your head being underneath water. And, uh, you know, if you've ever been in a pool and you hear people, you know, standing above you talking and it just sounds muffled. Well, that's what happens when the body is under extreme stress is that we don't hear anything. Uh, imagine a time when you might have been walking down a dark alley and all of a sudden the lid of a, uh, of a garbage can fell on the ground and smashed, you know, and then all of a sudden you, oh, wow, <laughs> you do, you do. And do you hear anything? No, you're just thinking, which way do I go? Do I run or do I fight? Um, fight or flight. But again, you know, it's a matter of just taking your time, getting them to open up and tell you what it is they want and what they need. You're not always going to agree with it. I mean, I got some requests. I need drugs. I need women. I need alcohol. I need a plane. I need a bus. And sometimes you just have to say, that's not going to happen, John. A how plane. Am I, how am I supposed to do that? You know, what can we do together here? You know, so, it, yeah, it, it's not easy, but it is a process and knowing the psychology, knowing that um, the person sitting across from you is more like you than you can imagine. And once you put yourself in their shoes, what would I do? What would I need in this situation? Sometimes all you need is a reassurance that they're making the right decision. 
that what you have to offer is the right solution for them. Imagine yourself in a state of crisis. Did you want did you want somebody to listen to you first, or did you want to did you want to talk? You know, and sometimes, you know, like depending on the circumstances, sometimes we want to talk, sometimes we want to listen. But imagine yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, and and hostage good hostage negotiators know that time, empathy, and working together towards solutions um, is what is vital and needed. Yeah, you brought up. Um when it comes time to you first initiating contact with this person, you need to disarm them, build rapport, build trust. Um, I see a segue and maybe I'm wrong in this, but um, I see a segue between what you can do to disarm someone and the first step in someone's self-awareness to disarm their own sabotage, to start making a change in their life. Can we, first off, am I right to assume that that's a very a pretty good tangent? They're about the same. Yep. Okay. So could we, um, I'd like to start pivoting to um, takeaways of like the entrepreneur and stuff like that. So how, what would you say is the most effective strategy um, and practice you've used to disarm someone? um, And how could we use that to identify um, patterns in our life where this could be cropping up? Okay. Um, I think one of the most important things, I mean, there's, uh, there's a number of different things we can use. One of the most important things is not to have the attitude that you have all the answers or all the solutions. You may, but don't give the other person the impression that you do. Be open to listening first and speaking next. Consider your client as someone very much like yourself. And if there is something that you feel uh, needs to be addressed, for example, a white elephant in the room, you happen to be talking with your client and all of a sudden you watch their body language and they suddenly shift over to something very rigid by something you said, that's something that you don't ignore. You don't speed up your conversation or ignore it and, and, and um, repeat what you just said in hopes that they'll forget the emotion that just popped in. No, it's like anything. If you happen to be with a significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever, and you notice that all of a sudden their body language changes by something you said, you don't hurry your conversation up or ignore it or, or take that I know best attitude. You have to identify the emotion and say, hey, I just I sense that you just got angry or you got upset or concerned by what I just said. Uh, let's talk about that. You know, it really is about being human with the other individual. We are our own worst uh, enemies at times. The things that we think, I can't do this. Um, you know, I, th- there's no way I could possibly get this deal. There's no way I could possibly, possibly get this date. There's no way I, I can do this. Well, if you tell yourself that, guess what? You're right. You've already programmed your body, your responses, your tone of voice, everything else to follow suit. You tell yourself you can't, and you cannot. I wrote a book on this very topic. It's about to be released uh, May 22nd. I'm so excited. And it, it, you know, I, I tell you, Um, When you begin to understand your worth, your value, and you prepare, you know, in every aspect of your life before you negotiate, before you meet, before you engage in business, or before you, you meet somebody for the first time, no matter what the circumstances, when you're ready, when you believe in yourself, when you take away the cages that hold you back, there is nothing that will hold you back. We are limitless. So I've been um, doing a lot of work and I I want to talk about myself for a second because I think that when you're new to self-sabotage, 
you kind of hear it as just a, a term that gets thrown around, but, uh, I was in denial that I even was sabotaging my life because I didn't see how really I was doing it. So I think that it's going to help someone hear how I've been sabotaging. So you can be on the lookout for it in your own life. So 2017 was the year that I really started to dive into mindset work with, um, like I work with Jared Tendler, who's a mental game performance coach. And so he works with some top athletes in the world to, um, when like poker, for example, or when you're in a tournament or a high stakes game, people tend to let the, their anxiety get the best of them and they can, um, lose and do other, have certain destructive behavioral patterns that will limit their performance. And so I started working with him because, um, there's a segue, but anyway, that's a different conversation, but I've become extremely self-aware of patterns in my life that now I can identify when I wake up in the morning and go to do something and I have certain thoughts, I can now identify, ha, that's your subconscious trying to stop you from doing bigger and better things. So, um, what happened in what, what I've learned about myself in the last 12 months is that I have a hard time scaling my services because I, um, have this innate belief that I'm worthless or the content that I put out there is not really impacting or changing people's lives. So because I had this underlying belief, um, you can imagine what would happen when I start to build a membership site or when I start to write a book or when I start to become an influencer in the space and really stand up and like, and own my stuff as I'm awesome. And I know what I'm doing. Like it's kind of a cognitive dissociation where my actions say one thing, but my brain in the back of my mind says, no, you're not good enough. This isn't, this isn't right. And so what's going to happen is like, I can trudge forward and do the thing, but I'm, ultimately going to destruct that because I don't believe I deserve it or I don't believe um, it's it's making an impact or difference. And it's crazy because when I, um, like when we shut down the membership site or when I stopped writing the book or, you know, whatever that thing was, uh, feedback I got from our audience, which is like, oh, please don't do this. We love you and your material. And it's just like contradictory to what I had convinced myself was going on. And I I think now um, even thoughts I've had this morning, like I'm pitching the business for going on podcasts and guest posts and reaching out to my network for um, like referral program and stuff. And like, I'm just looking at, I remember there's a couple of people that I honestly thought, um, well, they've referred people to me in the past, but they hate me or, oh, that last email I sent, they didn't reply to. So they don't want to talk to me. I'm making up these bullshit excuses in my mind that are actually just your brain trying to stop you and make excuses to do the thing. Um, my, a good friend of mine, I've been trying to get her to put her face on her website for two weeks now. And she's like, well, no, I need to get a video put together. No, just start small with what you're comfortable with. Um, cause she has beliefs about that. And, and I say this to be, um, I know that I cannot go to the next level in my life. If I don't identify and just move forward past this garbage anyway. And I think if you're listening to this, you may not even realize how you are sabotaging or, um, or what destructive things you have going on in your life right now. And so if you're really not where you want to be, it's time to really start to do some of the self-awareness work because it's going to come and bite you in some form or another. Um, so I hope you can resonate with my, my story a little bit, but that's been like, 
the story of my life for the last 18 months. And I, I'm so much better off because of it, but it was quite the journey to discover these things about myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, you speak, um, as so many others speak, uh, what is the difference between you and a highly successful individual? Maybe it's method. Um, but the thing is, they are no more worthy of getting riches or success than you are. There is nobody that is more worthy than you. And we have to remind ourselves that the, the successful, beautiful, wonderful people uh, you know, who are in these positions that we admire or whatever didn't get there overnight. You know, and, and they had to battle the same demons that we do. And those demons are those little voices in our heads that tell us that we're not good enough, that we just can't succeed. And uh, the moment we begin to value ourselves as being equal to everyone else and worthy as everyone else in getting the best out of life is the moment we start to make progression. And that is so important. So what if you are someone that's like, yeah, but... I'm really fit. I have a lot of money in the bank and I have no problems going after like every air, everything on paper seems okay. Like how can you identify the areas in your life where you may be holding yourself back? This is where you have to do that self-evaluation you talked about earlier. Sometimes we have to sit alone in a room for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and write down on a piece of paper what's working and what, what's not working in our lives and truly be honest, blatantly honest with ourselves uh, to the point where, why is it I'm not happy here? What am I doing that is not working? Or what am I doing that is working? So really taking some time to write in a journal or to write the self-examination, key points, I have money, I'm good looking, I'm this, but I'm just not happy. What is it? What is it? We have to find the root cause, you know, and, and that may take 20, 30 minutes, an hour to sit down and be totally honest with yourself, write things down, look at them. Once you find the root cause, you know, like, you know, a lot of my self-sabotage came from my earlier experiences as a child, being told by my father that I was worthless, being told by my teachers that I was worthless, and later discovering that I was not worthless. But a lot of the things that kept me back way back then, I traced to, to a little bit of my upbringing. But guess what? Those things are in the past. They don't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. The, future, the future hasn't been written. Five minutes from now, we don't know what's going to happen. We can plan for it. But we certainly don't know what's going to happen. Right now, the most important moment in your life and mine right now, you are looking at me, I'm looking at you. It's what we're sharing right now. This is the most important thing. It's what I tell you. It's what you tell me. It's how I feel about you. It's how you feel about me. Your listeners, this is the most important moment in their lives. There is something significant about this moment because we can make it anything we choose it to be. So if you don't feel successful, good looking, whatever, look at yourself, ask yourself why. Take that time to write down the possible scenarios. Don't dwell on it. Mm-hmm. Imagine that this moment is the most amazing moment of your life and live it because you are worthy of being happy and successful and everything else that goes along with life. Yeah. You brought up a really good point before where you say, um, and this is a big difference between, um, I, I think, having long-term healing of this wound versus a Band-Aid is 
you could say, okay, well, you've identified you're worthless, but you took it a step back to, I feel I'm worthless because my childhood experiences, this one event happened in my life that I use as a defining moment to create a belief system. Um, I think it's, so I do the journaling, but I've taken it a step further so that anytime I think I'm holding myself back or I'm struggling with the decision, I just write about it. Um, so I'll have a habit of something is bothering me today. So it could be, I really want to ask this guy out. It could be, I really want to go after this client, but I just don't think I'm there yet. Let's just write it down. I write about the symptoms and then I write about what could be causing it. And so from that like daily journaling practice of just getting it out of my head, I have identified what childhood memories have caused me to have those belief systems. I think it's important to really go back um, as well. Yes. But how did you discover that it was, cause it's, it makes sense now when you're like, well, I was worthless because <laughs> my, my teachers or whatever, but like, yeah, how did, yeah. how did you identify that for yourself? And when did you identify that? Well, one thing I never felt worthless. Uh, I was made to feel worthless, but I was never, uh, I did feel worthless, but I was never worthless. That, that's what okay. I get out. Okay. Yeah. Where it happened for me, was when I worked in the sexual assault and child abuse unit with victims of, of some of the most horrendous crimes you can imagine. And looking at them and seeing what meaning they attached to what happened. On one hand, I would have victims who would feel dirty, um, terrible, that like it was their fault for having gone through what it is that they went through when it was not in any way. On the other hand, I would have the survivors who would not attach a significant meaning to that. They would say, that happened to me. It's not my fault it happened. And I am valuable. That wasn't my fault. When we go back into our past and we take a look at some of the events that happened, you're told you're not good, you're, you're, you're held back, whatever it is, look at where that stuff is coming from. Who was the initiator of who told you that shit in your head? You know, were they, were they smarter or did they know you or, you know, were they better than you? No, not at all. And sometimes we just have to wipe our hands from our past because we can't change it. What we can change, as I said, is the moment. So when I looked at, at victims of crime who some, um, I lost you, your audio. Oh, oh, it did? oh you're back. You're back now. Oh, Sorry, just, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, you know, so one of the things that really uh, changed for me was when I saw how victims attached significance to what had happened to them. Uh, you know, some would look at themselves as being a true victim, you know, that they felt dirty, they felt cheap, they felt it was their fault. Maybe they dressed wrong, they did something wrong, and it wasn't. It wasn't their fault. What happened to them was not their fault. On the other hand, I would have the survivors who would say, this was not my fault, and they would carry on with their lives. It's, it's life is empty and meaningless until we attach fullness and meaning to what happens to us. And what I mean by that, say you're going out with somebody, you just met somebody, uh, things are going great. And you text that person, you say, hey, uh, I'm having a great day, how about you? And you don't hear from them in six hours. And you're thinking, do they not like me? Um, did something go wrong? Uh, am I not good enough? Oh, maybe they're seeing their, their acts or whatever. We're attaching so much, you know, so much stuff to an unanswered text that is meaningless because we don't know what's going on. So we go out, we see somebody else, we have a few drinks, we, we feel bad about ourselves, and then the next day they say, hey, honey, I'm sorry, um, 
I lost my phone or I dropped my phone in the water. I just got it back. Hey, hope your night was, I'm so sorry. So all of a sudden we're going, oh, okay. But look at what I did to myself in the meantime, you know? Have you done Landmark? No. Oh, no. Okay. Their Landmark Forum, <laughs> um, their whole thing, they get you spend like three full days so that on Sunday, they'll tell you that life is empty and meaningless. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So anyway. Um, no, I never did. But, but you know what? I, it comes down to this. I really, truly believe that in order for us to be successful and happy in life, we have to take ownership of who we are. Say, for example, we made a mistake. Say we hurt somebody. Say we were idiots in the past. Well, I dealt with a lot of criminals who had, done mis- who had made mistakes, who you had hurt people. But they had to come to a point where they actually forgave themselves first before getting forgiveness from others. As long as you're ready to change your behavior, ready to change your outlook and make some improvements in your life, whatever is past is the past. The future has not been written. The moment that's most important is now in the decisions that you make, and you are worthy of everything in this life. And in my book, I, I talk about how you can unhostage yourself because I, mm-hmm. I've applied the principles of hostage uh, situations to hostaging yourself, taking yourself hostage by what you say, what you do. I walked into auditions. I was an actor. Yeah. And I, I walked into auditions thinking, I really want this job. I really want this job. Oh, I hope I get this job. I need this job. I really need this job. So I'd walk in with all this anxiety and, and, and you know, focusing on the outcome as opposed to the process. And guess what? I wouldn't deliver my best, my best performance. I was nervous. And the directors would look at me and go, ah, you know, I, I just don't think so. We need somebody who's confident. We need somebody who feels comfortable in the role. And I realized after doing many you know, bad auditions that the moment I started having fun and really doing my very best in the moment and not it focusing on the it changes. Yes. We have the ability to change our lives. Nobody else does. I was sitting down with a client yesterday and for lunch, um, we had finished the campaign and I went in wondering, I just don't know what I can sell him for services. And that's not my style. Like, (laughs) and so as he's, as he's telling me like plans for expansion and, and all the parts that he's got figured out, I felt inferior. Like, oh, he, I helped you start your company and you don't need me. But then uh, as I'm talking, I'm like, dude, you're making this all about you. Like you can't come in with this big, again, outcome focus. And so I changed the conversation to, you know what? No, this is about you. How can I help you today? And so we just kept talking and then like, I gave them some great pieces of information and then we just kind of figured out how we could work together. And I was like, oh, so when I just stop being selfish and self-focused and outcome focused, like just make, just let it happen, you know? And it, it was, it was great. I love what you just said because it is such a key to cooperation with others is not making it about yourself. Uh, you know, imagine again, you know, putting your client first, you know, understanding his or her needs, what it is that they want. And sometimes, you know, like just by listening and by asking, you know, those questions, those exploratory questions, you get everything in their cooperation. They start, they start to think, hey, she really likes me. She really wants to help me here. Never mind about, you know, Jack that I just met down the street. He was more about himself. She's about me. And by doing that, 
your needs are met too because you work together. I know. And you both get yeah answers, right? Yeah. And if you want magic to happen, you go in <laughs> with no... I've noticed like... So I'm, I'm learning to do this as more of a daily thing with people. But if I go in with an open mind and no specific outcome and I focus on the other person, um, outcomes better than we would expect happen from yep. that. Always. So... Always. It, it happened with, um, it happened with uh, hostage negotiators, everyone. So yes, it does. Yeah. Um, so I know like uh, going into this conversation, I didn't know about your new book. I know about the current one on um, Amazon. So how can, this, is, this episode is getting released before the drop date of the new book. Um, but can you tell us, like, can people uh, join a wait list right now? Or like, how can they learn more and follow your stuff? Oh, yes. That? Okay. Now the, uh, the book that was on Amazon is no longer on Amazon. And I'll tell you why this is a great story. Um, I self published a book. It's called hostage to myself. It was called hostage to myself. And it's really about the principles that, that you embody and the ones that you talk about. It's about that self-sabotaging attitude and how we can master ourselves and then master really, and take, uh, you know, control of our lives. Um, so the book is to help you become the best you that you possibly can by ridding yourself of that self-sabotage. I self-published, and I was happy to do so. And as the universe kind of opened up one day, and a gentleman from uh, HarperCollins, uh, Canada, one of the biggest publishers in the world, HarperCollins, he managed or or happened to pick up my book, my self-published book. And I got an invitation to meet him for coffee. And uh, amazingly, they've decided to publish the book. That's uh, amazing. I know, isn't Congrats. it? Uh, thank you. All over the world. Um, so it's now going to be called Take Control of Your Life. Because one of the themes in my book is really on how we can take control of our lives. So it will be ma- uh, available May 22nd. Uh, bookstores, Amazon, uh, Right now, it's going to be Canada-wide, United States-wide, and UK-wide, and eventually worldwide. But Take Control of Your Life is the kind of book that everybody should read because it helps us unhostage ourselves from what is holding us back, those beliefs, those attitudes, and those prisons that hold us back from being the very best that we possibly can. And that translates to love, that translates to business, that translates to human relations, whatever. Once we unhostage ourselves and begin to take control of our lives, we actually do take control of our lives. I love that. Yeah. Right, guys, May 22nd. Um, awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. Do yeah. you have any famous last words before we say goodbye? I do. Um, you know, I, I, last words. The very last, I, I suppose, uh, the last thought I want to leave you with is that. Um, Nobody gets to dictate how you feel or what you do and, uh, you know, who you are, but you, you know, the, the responsibility of taking control of your life really remains with you. You can sit on a rock of solitude waiting to be rescued. Um, and that imaginary rescue party will never come. Nobody can hurt your feelings unless you let them. Nobody can take control of your life unless you let them. And then you become a real hostage. So my parting words would be to believe in yourself, to rescue yourself, and to take control of what you can take control of, and that's you. Really well said. 
Cool. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Awesome. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.